Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Coming up, flat packing its way to billions. IKEA's journey in Ireland has certainly been a lucrative one for the company. So we'll take a look at why they're doing so well out of Ireland's generous tax landscape. Jackie King, the Executive Director of International Business at IBEC, joins us to give her take on how business leaders here in Ireland are coping with the geopolitical difficulties and what IBEC want to see from Budget 2023. And finally, it seems there's no end in sight to grocery inflation. As the rate at which food and drink prices increase and accelerate in the UK, we'll ask, are we going in the same direction here in Ireland? You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, let's go to IKEA. I think that those words strike fear and horror into the hearts of many men I know. But IKEA, everybody knows this, it's based on the outskirts of Dublin on the M50. The story of how they got here is interesting in itself. But Thomas Hubert from The Currency has done a big deep dive into the complex tax and company structures. And he joins me now uh, to deconstruct it. Thomas, thanks very much for coming in today. Hi, Mandy. Now, just before we start uh, and get into the complexities of the company structure and stuff, just remind us of the concept of the IKEA brand, when it started, who set it up and what is its model? It's all from a, a Swedish man called uh, Ingar Kamprad and he started it in 1943, um, a long time ago. He's deceased now, but uh, he was just 17 when he started making furniture and it started out of his farm in rural Sweden and then grew into the multinational we know now. I suppose the, the flatback idea was what really made it global and, and such a worldwide success. So uh, that's why it, it came to nearly every country in the world, including Ireland, uh, very late in Ireland, actually, 2009, by the time the whole debate about whether we should have such big stores in Ireland was, was cleared. But uh, it, they did get here as well uh, for, for a store. But yeah. they, were, they were here before. And let's just go back to 2005 when those planning rules were changed yeah, to accommodate IKEA. Why were politicians at that time so anxious to have IKEA operating here in Ballymun? There was, uh, you know, this whole uh, pre-crash, the Celtic Tiger boom we had in, in, Ar- in Ireland and a lot of areas benefited from that, but some didn't. And Ballyman was one of those that didn't really benefit from the boom. There were no new businesses there. Um, it was kind of sandwiched between the airport and some industrial estates. And they, this were big chains to bring people there to actually shop and do nice things and start creating employment locally. And that was the big draw. And that's why IKEA also cleverly said they were happy to go there because they saw a chance to to bend the rules and get a bigger store, multiple times bigger than what was allowed at the time. And has that worked? Has it enhanced the area in any way? Has it drove business towards it beyond what happens in IKEA? If you go there now, it's it's very different. Uh, IKEA was first there, but now there's Decathlon just next door, another retail multinational. There is a, a big building site across the way where Dublin City Council is building a new um, facilities management area. Uh, with a big office and, and technical building. So it's turning into a, an actually exciting enough place to work and, and do business. Um, but they were first. And before we go into the complexities again of the company, do they um, use Irish suppliers and Irish business here um, at the moment? 
Not so much. I, I, they do for, for example, deliveries, and you know they use transporters and, and local partners to do all the the home uh, order thing. But really, the the whole supply chain is global. It's not specifically Irish. Um, it's really only the store that employs uh, a lot of people here. Now, the the piece that you're here to talk about in the currency today and yesterday uh, mentions group assets under management in Dublin of over 30 billion euro. That's banking territory, really. And um, can you just talk to us about those figures and the structure of the company that we're going to be talking about today? Because it's not just the IKEA store, is it? It is. It came long before the IKEA store. That's quite interesting uh, because we had this uh, incentive to attract multinationals to Ireland, especially in the the financial services industry. It started only in the IFSC, the Financial Services Centre in Dublin, in the Docklands in the late uh, 80s. And then in 1992, IKEA was one of the companies that came and enjoyed that very low 10% corporation tax rate that was available at the time if you came to the IFSC. Uh, then they expanded. At first, they just had an office, a branch of a Dutch company. It's always been a, a very complex structure internationally. They've always used the Netherlands as the main headquarters, not uh, always, but since they became a multinational, the Netherlands has been their main HQ. But they came to Ireland as early as 1992 with a branch of one of their Dutch holding companies to start storing cash in Dublin and just to lend it to other group companies. So at the, at the start, it was just a cash pooling system with a bit more money in one store in one country and we need a bit more elsewhere in the world. So we're just going to store it in Dublin for a while and then lend it out of Dublin to the country that needs it for a new IKEA store. And any profit arising out of that movie, money moving around will be taxed in Ireland at the very low 10% rate. But it got a lot bigger than that over the time uh, since then. Now they have uh, grown to a 30 billion euro uh, amount of assets located in Dublin. Still, this cash uh, pooling system, there's about 10 million of that going through a company called FAMI that's been located, uh, a fully Irish registered company that's been located in, in Ireland since 2001. So that company, again, gets all the, the accumulated profits from some stores and then lends it to others when they're expanding, building new stores. And then there's also 20 billion in bonds and investments. And just like you and me, we have a bit of money aside. We want to invest it to make sure it doesn't lose value with inflation. So invest it in some safe uh, deposits somewhere. Okay, so just let's go back a little bit. So they use the IFSC structure to base themselves way before they ever had a store here or anything like it. And they what pooled their assets and used themselves as a sort of bank for IKEA to distribute their wealth and profits to other IKEA stores. And then just can you talk to me about how that growth kind of amassed, you know, how many stores were eventually filling in to, to Ireland? How did they get from that to a situation where there's 30 billion going through that? So it's all part of a, a part of the IKEA global business, which is called Inca Group. And they are the retail side of the operation. They have, uh, I think, they have 465 IKEA stores around the world out of a bit more than 500. So the vast majority of the, the big blue stores, they are owned by Inca Group. And is that Inca Group managing their money through Ireland? And they are the ones using Ireland as their internal bank, okay. essentially, and their own investment fund. Um, so Inca Group doesn't make uh, the furniture, doesn't design, doesn't own the brand, but they own the stores. And uh, all the money that's being made uh, at the, the retail level 
then those profits, they are stored in Ireland. And that's where they're invested, either to reinvest in the future, into new stores, or to just at the moment, uh, may branch into new businesses as well, for example, renewable energy and things like that. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and I'm talking to Thomas Uber from The Currency about IKEA. It's a very low-key operation. I mean, I had absolutely no idea that this um, type of activity was happening with IKEA before their presence here. Do you think people would be surprised by this level of uh, funding that's been filtered through Ireland? Nothing wrong with it, of course. No, and that's exactly the kind of business um, the IFSC was meant to bring to Ireland. Mm. But it's not, you know, a, a big kind of public-facing business with a big IKEA sign outside the door. It's been very discreet. I only found it uh, by chance myself. I was just looking at a building where they're located, uh, writing a story about the landlord and looking at uh, who were the, the tenants out of curiosity and find out this whole business was located there. So th- there's more uh, of a yeah back office operation there. That is very important. Uh, It's about 28 people are working, uh, they confirmed to me at the moment, in Dublin on this particular money management business. Um, And what's their corporate presence here? Is is it confined to that operation then? There's four companies, uh, you know, that are involved in those uh, financial operations in in Dublin. So two of them are more in the day-to-day kind of cash pooling and lending back and forth between various group companies around the world. And two others are involved in um, kind of parking that money in safe investments to earn a bit of interest, but not take risks, just keep it available just in case. And that's the 20 billion side of things. And uh, one of them trades in euros and the other in dollars. So it's really international. And we saw earlier this year that they pulled out of Russia. Was that business important to them? It was. uh, They had been expanding in, in Russia quite aggressively and they are still actually present there, not with the IKEA brand. Those stores have closed, but they actually, the Inca group, that retail arm, also owns a lot of commercial property around the world. And that includes entire shopping centers. And some of them, 14 of them, are in Russia and they're still active, even though they don't have an IKEA store in them anymore. The rest of the shopping center is still there. But that, the actual property, is not actually controlled out of Dublin. Dublin is really the bank. It's where the money is is flowing, uh, where it's stored, where it's lent when one of the, the group members needs it. The actual ownership of separate businesses like property, like renewables, is actually still happening out of the Netherlands. They're very savvy, aren't they, at marketing themselves, you know, um, in terms of the way you think of, uh, of IKEA as a brand. And we keep mentioning brand. They look like a very environmentally savvy um, organisation, but then the concept of flat packing can't be that environmentally sound. So is that something about at their core that their brand management is, is an important part of how they kind of present themselves? Yeah, and there is the same tension in the corporate structures in that IKEA is formally owned by non-profit foundations. Uh, there, is, there are no shareholders. It's never been, been listed on any stock market. It's always been a privately held company by the founder's family at the start. And then before his death, he donated it to those foundations, the two, uh, you know, the Inca Foundation and another one that owns more of the the brand and and supply chain aspect of the business. And, um, you know, I was looking at how much uh, actual charitable activity they had last year. It was the Inca Foundation itself. uh, it, It channeled about 287 million to charitable projects. Um, out of profits of uh, multi-billion profits. So it's it's not exactly the main core of their activity. Really, the group owns itself and mm. it is dedicated to its own reinvestment and growing more and more IKEA stores around the world. 
And you've studied lots of business models and analysed lots of commercial deals. What do you make of this um, concept of a, a, a company like this uh, kind of creating its own banking institution, if you like, to fund its own activities and still having a philanthropic arm to it as well as everything else? The philanthropic arm is is kind of unusual and, and the actual ownership by a foundation is, is unusual. Uh, but the fact that they have their treasury management, their internal bank in Ireland is actually fairly common. I've seen a lot more examples. Uh, just the top of my head, Pfizer does that in Ireland. They don't only have factories, but they also have a big financial centre that channels money around the group where it's needed. Dell, uh, the IT company, does something similar here. Uh, IBM as well. So there, there's a, a lot of examples actually where this is happening all the way back to this this actual policy we had of attracting financial services to Ireland. So in that sense, the IFSC worked as a concept where people came here first, created these sort of mini financial institutions for their business and then the business followed after. In a way, it, it probably helped, yes, uh, because when you have that activity here and you have a kind of serious amount of staff already familiar with the financial structures of the group, it's good to then maybe come with intellectual property and other very valuable assets that you can base in Ireland as well. And um, I think it's, yeah, it's important to say that financial services are not only the the businesses that are dedicated to this. We've always been talking about banks and, you know, investment fund managers that came to the IFSC first and now to Dublin in general and other further afield all the way around Ireland, setting up credit card companies and things like that, uh, their offices for Europe. But um, it's actually also internal finance. And that's uh, a, lot, a lot of multinationals are doing this activity in Ireland. It's important for them because they have a central place where they know it's safe to base their assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like the legal system. They like that it's in the EU, that it's Euro, Eurozone based. But it's also important for Ireland because they pay taxes here and that's part of the big corporation tax windfall we've seen in the last few years. And of course, in a post-Brexit landscape, that might be an attractive location for people who had, uh, you know, previously set set their their HQ in in the UK. Just a very final quick question, if I may, on the IKEA thing. COVID-19, did that affect their business model? Good, bad, what happened? It did in that they were kind of, uh, they're very much like other retailers. They were struggling a bit before COVID-19 because they were based on those big suburban big stores. stores. You need your car, you need to park. And that's kind of going out of fashion in a lot of Western countries. And they were beginning to transition to digital. When COVID hit, they took a hit to sales and profits in 2020. But they had already seen that that was coming and they actually had taken money out of these Irish reserves, the billions we've talked about, to invest in digital, in online sales. So they were able to rebound quickly enough in 2021 and they're back on their growth trajectory at this point as far as I can see, yes. Okay, well for now we'll have to leave it there but it is a very complex structure as complicated as one of their flat pack kitchens but very interesting to read it. Uh, That's Thomas Huber of The Currency and you can find that story on The Currency site. Thomas, thank you very much for coming in to us today. Thanks Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, as business and workers deal with the cost of living crisis, what do IBEC want to see from Budget 2023? Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, as Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath put the final touches to Budget 2023, the focus of the business community will be on dealing with the impact of 
rapid escalations in costs, particularly on the energy and, and labour side. IBEC says that those businesses must be supported by a significant immediate package of emergency energy supports. And I'm joined now by Jackie King, who is Executive Director at the International Business Section of IBEC, to tell us why. Jackie, you're very welcome to uh, Taking Stock. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Mandy. Nice to be here. Now, before we get stuck into the budget and what lies ahead and what IBEC think business needs, can you just uh, give us uh, a bit of a background of the the IBEC uh, international business section? What is that? Where is it located and what's it all about? Yeah, so um, so IBEC is always uh, engaged internationally um, on a policy front. We have a presence already, and we have in the in the fifty years that I, uh, that Ireland has been a member of the EU, had policy um, expertise and advocacy in, in Brussels, and and this is really an evolution of uh, where we've gone um, in our international policy and building out. Um, uh, greater value for current members, uh, building out our influence and, and um, impact uh, both in the EU and at an international level. Um, so we are really focused on um, helping international business achieve their commercial growth goals and, uh, and, and delivering all they need to do that, whether it's through in- insights and, and information to help them make uh, investment decisions or manage risk. Um, or providing a platform for them to network with their peers and uh, collectively coming together in a multi-stakeholder sector and industry agnostic way to address from a business perspective and ensure the business voice is heard on macro issues that are uh, that have a significant impact on on business today. Mm-hmm. Everything from yeah, and that includes energy, that includes inflation, cybersecurity, ESG, you name it. I suppose, in a broad sense, it, it's a recognition that you know the world is getting smaller when it comes to business, isn't it? The the lines are blurred, the borders are blurred. And did Brexit have a bearing on your kind of decision to expand that international aspect of uh, IBEC? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we were already going in that direction, but that that certainly created uh, a greater opportunity for us, and and certainly to capitalize on a vacuum that was left, um, you know, uh, uh, out of out of Brexit, and 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 the way things are emerging uh, now, there is you know significant risk and and complexity in um, the, you know, regulatory divergence, for example, in a number of areas. And we can play a key role in that as leaders in the EU, as well as having a clear um, and solid relationship with the UK and our operation um, in, in terms of an all-island perspective. So, so even in the area of divergence, uh, there's a real need, and we're seeing that from, from business to, um, uh, to help them navigate that in, in this new uh, world without the UK and the EU. Yeah, f- so for sure there are those international dimensions, but there's also business operating back home in Ireland here. Absolutely. Uh, what, what, Jackie, are the main challenges that lie ahead for Irish business and what is it that you want for your membership from Budget 2023? Um, so <laughs> we're, we're, we're not unique as a country in terms of the challenges that businesses are facing. And I would say, you know, we've we've um, 
have a comprehensive submission that we've we've made in budget 2023 as well as our our various sectors have made specific submissions as well but but overall i'd say um you know uh what we've proposed and in terms of new measures for 2023 is around the two billion mark um you know net of tax increases and and so on um and really ensuring that um Fiscal policy remains flexible to changing conditions because our businesses are are experiencing changing conditions that are outside of their control. Everything that's happening, you'll hear the word unprecedented over and over again, uh, but it has a significant impact, which means that there needs to be agility and, and, you know, uh, ability to adapt to, to the changing conditions. Um, Another area for us in terms of what we're proposing is, um, you know, the whole cumulative impact of, of labor market policy measures that are causing major concerns in, in businesses. That's that's something we're hearing over and over again, regardless of industry and sector and, and regardless of the region across um, Ireland. Um, we estimate um, that about, you know, a rollout of the auto enrollment, for example, the living wage, pension, statutory sick pay, and other of those leave proposals that are already announced will add up to roughly uh, a 9% um, to average labor costs in Ireland over the coming decade. And that's, that's significant for business and certainly significant um, if, if we want to keep Ireland as, as a destination, especially for our multinationals to invest here. Um, and the total across the, the whole economy on that front um, for many companies in domestic-facing sectors, low-margin exporters and SME community, the cost of implementing some of these increases in pension coverage and wage floors will be much higher. So that's already on 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 top of existing pressures of, you know, significant costs faced by Irish companies with energy and commodity and transport costs and and challenging profitability of so many. So so we're call you know we're calling um, for some uh, some rational thinking around that. Um, you mentioned energy earlier, so the focus on energy measured measures, but not just now, but future proofing and and building resilience. So that means you know dealing with the supply side and inflationary shock, um, and and so in in that sense, we must focus on embedding that resilience into our energy system. You know, the tax and spending system can be both, you know, a carrot or a stick mm. in this regard. And uh, by increasing the cost of carbon while lowering the relative cost of, of lower carbon technologies, you know, we support the government's commitment um, in continuing uh, to increase those, you know, taxes. And we'll maybe deal with those carbon budgets uh, a little bit later on. For now, if you're if you're just tuning yeah. in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. And I'm talking to Jackie King, who's Executive Director at International Business at IBEC. Jackie, I just wanted to pick up on something you said there about the wages and um, the cost of wages for business. And I'm getting a sense from you that some of the promises maybe that government are making on the one hand to appease workers, to deal with the cost of living prices. It sounds to me that your membership and indeed the the the, the organisation itself feels that maybe some of those are really unrealistic for businesses to implement. Do you get a sense that in trying to, you know, deal with the cost of living crisis that they might be challenging the competitiveness of businesses going forward? 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, both in terms of competitiveness, and and that's why we're we're also asking for investment into those those um, you know sectors of our economy that are suffering more than others. But but absolutely, and and um, you know we've always supported a minimum wage as as a principle, but. You know, we hold that any change in this floor must be appropriate and competitive and affordable. So we're not saying no to all of this stuff. We're just saying let's let's be realistic and and real about what it means, especially for small businesses, mm-hmm. uh, Mandy. You know, up to eighty two percent of the costs experienced are are labor costs, and and that's according to our own internal survey. So, so it is creating a challenge for business. Yeah, and like you say, on top of that, the vast amount of energy increases that they're having to to face at the moment is firstly unsustainable, and secondly, you know, I constantly hear this once off measures like there's going to be nothing once off about the energy price increases they're going to last for a number of years. So Jackie, I wanted to turn to to another area. I know IBEC recently announced the launch of an international ESG or environmental social and governance Mm -hmm. certification program that's designed for board directors and senior business professionals. But I just wondered, do you think that ESG has taken a sort of back seat now when we're talking about things like the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis? Like, is there any, you know, is there any sense that actually these things are, are going to be put on the back burner? Forgive the pun. <laughs> I, I know it seems like we've got bigger, bigger issues, but but from a public and a public pressure and collectivism uh, approach um, standpoint, I, I don't think the public and society will will allow us to uh, move away from the ESG agenda. And certainly, um, you know, as new generations are coming up, and you're seeing different. Um, uh, you know, different political outcomes in different member states in the EU, for example, and 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 so I think this the social and and environment agenda, you know, is something that we're we're not going to be able to ignore. And by by all accounts, it's it's not being ignored by government. It's certainly not being ignored by business. Although you know, making the headlines now are are the bigger, you know, urgent, more acute issues like inflation and energy affordability affordability and, and, and those kinds of things. So it, it is becoming more complex, mm. but how do, you, how do you navigate that as a business is, is the big question. Well, I think when we're talking about ESG, people tend to focus a lot on the environmental side, but there is that social side of it as well and the governance side, which which some people tend to forget about. But just on that social aspect and your career is a lot about building high performance teams, I know, and transitioning organisations. Can you just um, give us a sense of um, the discussion around talent and the great resignation that we've we've been hearing about? Are companies struggling to hold on to experience at the moment? Um. Yes, I, I think you can make a general um, statement about the, the challenges that that companies are facing um, holding on to talent. It, it's not it's not the same in every company, obviously, but certainly across the board. Um, you know, employees are making different decisions now, and and um, you know, COVID, um, you know, factored into a lot of those decisions. People are. Deciding on life cho- uh, lifestyle choices, where they want to live. Um, you know, younger generations are are deciding where they work based on the purpose of the organization and how they operate in the culture and and what they're committed to and their responsibility, as opposed to just um, you know this is a job and this is my salary. So, so all of those things combined means that there, you know, the social part of ESG is going to be a dominant factor for business. And focus. Obviously, the environment piece is not going to go away. I think everybody's 
now aligned that 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 you know we need climate action for example um but but certainly the social dimension will come into play as well and 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 that includes equality and diversity and inclusion and and all of the the streams around that uh whether it's in the workplace or in society um you know inflation um covid all of those things have actually widened the divide in inequality and so you know we've made a few steps forward and now we're going backwards a little bit even even in the workplace you know um not everybody comes from the same uh socioeconomic background so does that mean there's equal opportunity even in with within workplaces for for those individuals regardless of you know their yeah. sexual there's cer- yeah. Th- thankfully there's certainly a growing awareness of that need for equality in the workplace mm. just about your own career Jackie how does somebody end up um, as head of the international section of IBEC what is your own career trajectory well I started out in communications and consulting with an international firm I started as an intern and, and grew up through that organization um uh, and, and leading, you know, running part of the business and, and also having a portfolio of my own clients uh, that focus primarily on, on international business. That was based in Canada. Okay. What led you to, to work for IBEC? It, it was by coincidence um, and, or, or opportunity and chance. Um, I, my previous role was uh, Chief Operating Officer at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and part yeah. of my role there was to build out their international business. So I you know, became acquainted with, you know, some of the leaders in IBEC and there was alignment there. I'm originally from Ireland. I, I, my family is from and, and still lives in Limerick. So it's, it's coming home in, in one way and, and seeing an opportunity to help a really great, strong organization expand its international ambition. And I love building and fixing things. So, so it was, it was a great opportunity that I couldn't pass down. Okay, well, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. There's certainly lots to, to fix around here, but for now we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> That's Jackie King, his Executive Director of International Business at IBEC. Jackie, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Inflation is dropping into our shopping baskets every week. We'll be joined by two experts to discuss how prices and supply problems here in Ireland compare with our neighbours in the UK. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Now, UK grocery inflation hit record highs this August, according to new data from the research company Kantar, who said that the cost of groceries in the UK rose by 12.4% annually. It's the fastest since that company has started recording data. How is all of that affecting consumer behaviour in the UK? What's happening to the big four UK supermarkets as a result? And are these record increases destined to happen here in Ireland? Well, to discuss, I'm joined now by Larry Elliott, who's economics editor with The Guardian, and Mark Paul, the business correspondent with The Irish Times. Larry, Mark, you're very welcome. Hello. Thank you. Larry, I'll start off with you because we're self-obsessed here in Ireland, but we we, we never miss an opportunity to compare ourselves to our nearest neighbours. So can you just tell us what inflation is like there in the UK generally and and more particularly in relation to that grocery market? Yeah, I mean, inflation is now the highest it's been here for 40 years. I mean, it came down slightly uh, in in August from July, but it's still uh, 9.9%, which is... Apart from the 10.1% in, in July, it's the highest it's been since the early 1980s. So it's, it's, it's clearly a, a very big problem. 
Um, and food inflation is part of that story. I mean, the, the, big, the biggest element in the inflation basket has, has obviously been energy costs. Domestic fuel bills have gone up. The cost of driving a car has gone up. But food inflation has also gone up very, very strongly. Um, and uh, that's pretty much across the board. But, I mean, staples, eggs, cheese, milk have been amongst the, the fastest growing price rises. So it's, it's, it's clearly having an impact on on consumers, uh, consumers' uh, uh, living standards. Larry, how much of that, or does any of that, relate to the Brexit changes that uh, are going through uh, the the UK trading system at the moment? Uh, it may be having a small impact, but I, I would say that it's, it's much more to do with global supply chains and the impact of the war in Ukraine. I mean, those are the two biggest factors. I mean, it's it's, it's uh, the, uh, it may well be that um, some of the frictions caused by Brexit are having an impact, but I'd say they were they were very minor compared to the to, to, to the other two factors I've mentioned, which are which are, which are definitely the, the the prime movers here. I think. Mark, I might bring you in here. A similar experience here in Ireland, um, because of our relationship with the British food and grocery items and supermarkets and supply chains, are we affected by these these rises in in the UK particularly? Well, I suppose we're affected in two ways. The first being that that you know the the underlying factors around energy and labour costs and so on, and um, that are affecting the grocery market in the UK are also affecting separately affecting the grocery market in Ireland. But there there, there is a secondary factor for the Irish market, and that's that the supply chains of a lot of Irish supermarkets are indelibly wrapped up in the supply chains of British companies. Um, so if you look at, for example, Tesco, which has um, over one-fifth of the, of, the, of the market here, uh, the, gross, the, super, the grocery market, I mean, it's, it's, its Irish supply chain is, is, is effectively a, a part of its British supply chain. It's a British company. Um, um, but even, even the indigenous operators here, the likes of Dunn Stores and, uh, and Super Value, I mean, they all buy from the big British suppliers, the likes of Unilever. I mean, that's where we get our Nor Soup and our, our Hellman's mayonnaise from. And um, Procter and Gamble, another big British company, that's where we get our our, our you know our whatever Gillette razors and Crest toothpaste and those kind of brands, staple brands in in in, in Irish grocery uh, supermarket shopping. Um, and so all of the Irish supermarkets buy from these big British companies, and 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 the same price increases that are being pushed through. In British supermarkets by these companies are also being pushed through here um, and, and the supply chains between the two are really so integrated and Brexit has done a little bit to weaken that link but it hasn't broken it completely um, and it hasn't broken it at all actually uh, really much and, uh, and, 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 and the same factors then are driving it here but of course then we also have um, separately then you know the, the underlying factors I mean you know in, in, in food price inflation in Ireland at the moment really the things driving it, um, um, as Larry mentioned, obviously it's energy and um, um, labour costs, and, and also the cost of animal feed and uh, and fertilisers is really feeding into you know, grocery prices, and 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 that's one of the real driving forces now in uh, in, the, in the rising cost of food in uh, in your average weekly shopping basket. And Larry, all of this has um, changed not only consumer behaviour, but it's kind of changed the landscape of the UK's supermarkets. Can you talk us through um, the big four and how that landscape has changed in recent months? Well, we've had interesting news this week that Aldi, the uh, real dis- one of the big discount retailers, has broken into the big four at the expense of Morrison. So this is, I mean, this is not. Um, no, I mean the um, the, the uh, Lidl and Aldi 
got a foothold really in the UK grocery market at the time of the um, financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. Uh, that's when they really established themselves. But you can see logically why people are turning to the discount retailers uh, in their in their in their thousands and, and, and tens of thousands, maybe, because their living standards are being severely squeezed, and if people's household budgets uh, are being uh, are being squeezed by higher energy bills, and the fact that pay is not keeping up with price rises, it means that people are looking around for ways of saving money, and the discount retailers start to look awfully attractive in those circumstances. So. You know, people are people are voting with their feet. Really, they're going places where uh, where, where where prices are lower, um, and uh, you know, uh, that's completely understandable, I think. And it, it, we're likely to see that process continue uh, for some time because you know it, it's not it's not immediately obvious why inflation is going to come down here that quickly. And by the time it does, those habits are going to become ingrained. I think people are going to go to the they're going to go to Aldi and Lidl and find out how 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 much more cheap they can do their weekly shop. And uh, once they once they're gone, they they won't they won't come back. Yeah, and maybe in that climate, big brands become less important than own brands, where you can you can get a bit of a, a saving. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're, we're talking to Larry Elliott, economics editor with the Guardian, and Mark Paul, business correspondent with the Irish Times. Mark, you had uh, an, an interesting piece some weeks ago about greedflation and uh, a particularly interesting story about some tactics uh, a, a supermarket or a shop was using to try and entice customers in. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Because that retail um, opportunism, I suppose, is something that we, we all have to look at. What's real inflation and what is retail kind of trying to entice customers in and inflating those prices beyond what inflation would require. Yeah, I mean I mean that story that you refer to I suppose is a combination between greedflation which is which is really this phenomenon where companies are accused of profiteering uh, on the back of the inflation crisis and I suppose just unethical advertising or marketing it's a little it sort of crosses the nexus between the two. But basically what happened was my local supermarket I was walking in the door um, with my daughter um, in to do my shopping and there was a there was a supermarket trolley um, um, just inside the door which looked like it was overflowing with items and there was a sign behind it that said um, you know you know do all your shopping uh, you know uh, get all get all this stuff here for 100 euros and i kind of stopped in my tracks and i went god i haven't i haven't filled a shopping trolley for 100 euros in in i don't know how long you know i mean that's it's a long long time since i was able to do that to do that but i got a little bit suspicious because there was sort of branded paper all around the side of the uh, supermarket trolley and the goods looked like they were flowing over the top but actually when you ripped when you ripped down the side of the paper which i did unceremoniously um they had put a false bottom on the, uh, on, the on the on the on the supermarket trolley and all of those goods were actually very thinly spread on this false bottom and and looked like it was an overflown supermarket trolley but of course it was only about um and one fifth full um so i i just kind of thought it was um it was sort of praying it was it was an image it created an image a misleading image i thought to people that you could get a full basket of shopping for 100 euros when of course it would cost you several hundred euros but i mean look the, the the, the price, uh, as in the UK, you know, the price of everything in Ireland um, um, in grocery shopping is going up, um, um, regardless of what the supermarkets um, and regardless of how much they try and play it down. And we have a, a very empirical source for all of this. I mean, the Central Statistics Office um, uh, brings out a, a list, a very detailed list of national average prices. 
um, um, on, on, on everyday items. Um, and, and the most recent one that we have for July, I mean, it goes into sort of the granular detail where you can see that um, over the last 12 months uh, uh, until the July, um, your average price of a white slice pan in Ireland um, went up by 17%. Um, uh, you know, that would have been, I suppose, impacted by wheat prices and maybe the energy costs for baking the bread. And, um, you know, 500 grams of spaghetti up by 27%. I mean, you know, even the old Irish fry-up breakfast hasn't escaped. I mean, the price of back rashers up 11%, milk 21%, um, butter 20%. So all of these things are feeding in. Um, and one of the things that people really don't, I suppose, um, you know, think about when they're doing their grocery shopping, you know, particularly if you're buying something like um, like eggs or like chicken, is animal feed i mean i mean those those chickens and hens i mean they're fed on grain on wheat and as anybody who's been following the commodity markets knows and um, you know the price of wheat has, has has skyrocketed particularly since the war in ukraine um, and then and then obviously you have the impact of energy rises um, anything that has a complex manufacturing process, anything that's baked, anything that requires ovens or kilns, or anything that has to be transported long distance over the road. I mean, those costs feed directly into the price that you pay in the supermarket. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, our, our grocery price inflation isn't quite at the level of the UK. The most recent figure that we have, I think, is about 9.5%. But there's new figures due out from Kantar for Ireland, I think, next week. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see those rolling into the double figures, you know. Larry, as Mark said there, this is a, a very perfect storm, quite a complex matrix, all coming together at the same time. But for households, this isn't about discretionary spending. This is about things that household needs. What's the feeling there in the UK about how the cost of living crisis is being handled by the government? Is there any sense of unrest building or protests manifesting on the streets? I, mean, I think to an extent the government has headed that off for the time being by announcing the, uh, the energy price cap, which is going to limit the energy, average energy bill to £2,500 per household. I think that had it not done that, there would have been the, there would have been all the ingredients there for some, you know, mass disobedience and then perhaps even rioting on the streets here, you know, because people just wouldn't have been able to pay pay their energy bills. I mean, there, there was talk of um, energy bills being five, six thousand pounds a year next year, had the um, had the government not stepped in, I think that they've just they've just about uh, done enough and just about done it in time to prevent an absolute cost of living emergency. I mean, it, had they not done so, the economy here would have fallen not straight off a cliff. We would have had a, a, an absolutely massive recession. So the government really had no choice. Um, but it. But it, 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 uh, it's still going to be a tough winter here. There's no question about that. But it's just it's, it's going to be less tough than it would have been had the government not intervened with the price cap. I mean, and it is going to be toughest for uh, low-income families because you know, they spend a lot more of their household budget on staple things. They spend a lot more on energy and they spend a lot more on food than does the, the, than do rich households. So, you know, although the average inflation rate here is 9.9%. It's been worked out that the, the rate for um, the, the, the lowest, the poorest 10% of the population is more like 11 or 12%. So, you know, there's a real genuine squeeze going on here um, and, it, and it's affecting the, 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 the most vulnerable families the most. Mark, I just want to ask you one final question. We're well used to in times of economic difficulties hearing about the Newry shop and everybody from the Republic going up the north to kind of get better value and better deals. Could these differences in the inflationary prices, particularly on groceries and, and food items, could it mean something happening in the opposite direction? 
Well, look, uh, I mean, who knows? Because obviously, uh, if you're going from, say, Dublin up to Newry across the border or, or, or the other way around, remember, you've got to drive there. So um, um, you, you, the price of the petrol or the diesel in your car is going to be going up too. So people will be factoring that in. Look, there's always going to be a certain amount of, of, of cross-border trade, particularly up around border counties. Um, uh, you know, people pe- pe- people will always go across. You know, you, know you, you will find at one stage, I remember Sainsbury's, even though it doesn't have any shops in the Irish market, um, um, in, 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 the, in the, the Republic of Ireland market, it was reputed at one stage to have about 2% of the market here because of the amount of people who were going south from the south up to the north um, to do their shopping when, when, when times were cheaper. Look, it's, it's expensive now on both sides of the border. Um, I notice, obviously, obviously, the energy price cap is going to make things a little bit easier for people in, in, in the UK. The Irish government hasn't gone that route um, because uh, because they, there's still echoes of the bank guarantee mm. here when the state guaranteed a huge sum that they didn't know. So they're a bit more queasy about doing that kind of thing over here uh, or, or in, in, in Ireland. But um, one thing is for certain that there is no prospect uh, of, of food and supermarket and grocery prices coming down anytime soon. Um, and, uh, and and certainly any supermarket chief executives I talked to don't give any succour on that matter, they all say. And, 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 and some of the energy price rises that we're seeing now They'll only feed through into the uh, into the into the uh, prices at the tills in a couple of months' time. Sometimes during the winter, so we've got a long, hard winter ahead of us. I think. Well, unfortunately, no light at the end of this particular tunnel at the moment. But we do appreciate your insights, gentlemen. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Larry Elliott, economics editor with the Guardian, and Mark Paul, business correspondent with the Irish Times. Thanks, guys, for joining us today. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley and his panel with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.